This past Tuesday, I went to the movies with my son. We were having some dad-son hangout time, and I went to uh, buy some candy that cost me $112. It's highway robbery, and uh, we may or may not sneak candy into the movie theater. And um, I, I went to buy some candy, and this individual said, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee, I was wearing an Eddie Bauer vest that the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention had given to me. I did some part-time work for them. And I said, and I was kind of blown away, who in the world knows the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee? And I just said, hey, do you, do you go to church anywhere? He goes, yeah, I go to a Baptist church. And I said, well, which church do you go to? He goes, I go to Graceland. And I said, well, were you there the last couple of weeks? He goes, yeah. I said, well, I... I preached a couple weeks ago. He goes, yeah, you did. You preached a couple weeks ago. I said, well, JT, my name's Nate. JT was right up here. He's a very observant young man. And um, so it was nice, nice to meet him. And, and I don't know you, and uh, I don't uh, know a lot of people here, but my name's Nate. I serve as a husband, as a dad. I serve with the North American Mission Board. I oversee church planting for the state of Indiana. I have a team that uh, I get to serve alongside with, and I serve here. Uh, under Pastor Larry, our lead pastor, as one of the pastors, specifically the pastor of Church Planning Partnerships, which means I'm going to help us by God's grace and hopefully many of you to be more engaged and more involved in starting churches. Uh, there's lots of churches that need help, that need to be revitalized. And so we, by God's grace, he allowed us to do that at Palmyra. That's where Larry is now. And then we need new churches. And so excited about those roles that I get to serve in. I have the, the privilege and the honor to preach the Bible this morning on Romance Matters. Now, I, I told Pastor Larry, I've only been here about four weeks, and, and if, I, if I get in trouble because, because of something I have said or preached, I'm, I'm totally blaming it on you. So you're the lead guy, and so you gave me this task. So um, if you don't like anything I have to say, it's, my email is lre. I-L-L-Y at gracelandbaptist.org. That, that might, may or may not be Larry's email address. But I'm preaching on Romance Matters, and I want to share a couple statements with you, and you tell me if you think these are romantic. Uh, you can shout out loud or raise your hand, or I received that. Here, here's the first one. When I see you in a crowd, you're the only one who appears in color. The rest of the world is black and white. I think that's pretty romantic, don't you? Okay. If you, if you quote that, you can quote me because I quoted somebody else, all right? Um, here's another one, maybe not so romantic. Hey, I told you that I loved you on our wedding day. If anything changes, I'm going to let you know, right? Not, not very romantic. Boo, yes, I received that. Here's one that I think is very romantic in action. Um, honey, thank you for emptying and loading the dishwasher. I think that's romantic, okay, honestly. Okay, um, here's another one. I love being married. It's so great to find that special person that you get to spend the rest of your life annoying. Okay, now in my house, my wife does not like sweets. She doesn't like chocolate. She doesn't like flowers. What my wife thinks is romantic, she, she knows that I've been thinking of her, is if I go to Sonic and get a Route 44 cherry slush. That, that's romantic, okay? She, if I come home with flowers, she's like, why? Why? Like, they're just gonna die. And so she likes, she likes a cherry slush. It's a lot cheaper, by the way, than flowers. So some of you men are jealous. So I'm preaching on romance matters. Now, I wanna anticipate what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, 
Um, I've got romance down. No, you don't. Your wife knows it and, and your husband knows it. You need some help, as do I. Okay, nobody's arrived. Uh, you're thinking, I'm single and uh, I don't want to be thinking about romance because I'd like to be there, but I'm not. Or I'm, I'm widowed or divorced. And so this is a topic or a message that's really going to be irrelevant. I hope that you'll lean in and continue to listen because I think the, the title of the message, What Does Jesus Have to Do with Romance?, should lead us to understand that it's not just about romance. Romance is a foretaste of what is to come. Romance, intimacy, oneness, the relationship that we have, most specifically in the context of marriage, points us to a greater relationship and oneness that we can have through the Father in Christ. Now, let me give you a definition of romance, a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love. I don't really like the mystery part. I like to live in the known world, so I don't like to know, hey, what's romantic, what's not, but a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love. Romance is one of those actions that is other-oriented, right? It's an action that is other-oriented. I realize romance can be selfish where we think about our needs and our preferences. I need to grow in this. I need to be more concerned about my bride's needs, my kids' needs, their preferences, church members, acquaintances, friends. But we, we don't want to think of romance purely in terms of physical intimacy and romance. We want to have a more broad, comprehensive view of romance. Is it romantic to have a couple who declared on their wedding day 50, 60, 70 years ago that they will remain faithful and be steadfast to, a, to their husband, to their wife. And for 50, 60 years, they have been committed. Is that romantic? That's absolutely romantic. There is a stick to in terms of vows that we should actually exemplify in our life. Vows are not a declaration of present love. Who in the world needs to prompt and encourage a groom and a bride to exude love in the present moment? Vows are a declaration of future love, which is why we say in rich, richness or poverty, in healthness or sickness, uh, in good times and in bad, I'm gonna remain committed to you because we need to continually remind ourselves, I've made a commitment to you and you've made a commitment to me. So longevity of marriage is very romantic. So we wanna broaden our understanding of what romance is. You'll see on the listening guide, it's on the screens as well, what you believe about God, what you believe about God will determine the quality of your romance and marriage. What you believe about God will de determine the quality of your romance and marriage. Our theology, in other words, it governs the way that we view life. Our theology governs the way that we view life. Now, I'll look at two passages. I'll read Philippians 2 uh, a little bit later, and I'll walk through Ephesians chapter 4, but I, I want to... I want to ask four questions this morning, four questions, and hopefully give four answers. The first question is this, where did romance start? Where did romance start? So what I'm going to do is kind of give a biblical theology, look at the storyline of Scripture, and, and take the topic of romance. And the first question is, where did romance start? Second question is, where did romance go wrong? Where did it go wrong? You say, in my house. Okay, that might be the case, but that's, that's not here this morning. Where did it go wrong? How can it be redeemed or restored? And what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? Nate, I appreciate the message on romance matters, but I'm single, or I've been married a long time, or I'm divorced. H how does this relate to me in my life right now? And I hope to bring some application to bear upon your life. Now, where did romance start? 
It started in Genesis 2, where we see intimacy and oneness. In the very beginning, there is a marriage in the garden. There's a marriage between Adam and Eve. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's important because sin had not entered in, and there is no guilt. There is no embarrassment. There's no shame. With sin comes shame, comes guilt, comes embarrassment. Now, the thought that comes to people's mind when we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, is this physical act, this physical act of union. And that's right, but it's so much more than merely the physical act of marriage. The one flesh in marriage is not just a physical phenomenon, as one person said, but a uniting of the totality of two personalities. In marriage, we are one flesh spiritually by vow, economically by sharing, logistically by adjusting time and agreeing on the disbursement of life's resources, experientially by trudging through the dark valleys and standing victoriously on the peaks of success and sexually by the bonding of our bodies. This oneness, this intimacy is more than just the physical Union. So in Genesis 2, we see this chain of events. Man is alone. God recognizes the need. He sees the need. He provides for man with this woman. Man receives the woman, receives this provision. They cleave to one another. They become one flesh, and they experience oneness, intimacy, romance, if you will. That's where it started. Where did it go wrong? Well, just one chapter later, Genesis chapter 3, we see where it goes wrong, right? Eve is tempted by Satan who disguises himself in the form of a serpent. He begins to question and impugn the character and the motive of God. Did God really say? It's the first instance that you know you're traveling down a wrong road. Did God really mean this? Did God really say? And so Adam and Eve both impugn the character of God. God must be withholding something from us. So Eve partook of the fruit. And she gives it to Adam, which, by the way, the imagery in Genesis 3 is not that Adam was on the other side of the garden. The imagery is that he's right there looking at this exchange between his bride and Satan. And so you'll find um, at times, particularly men will make flippant comments, and please don't nudge your husband or point out a man if this is him. And they'll say, you know, the devastation of the world really was because of Eve. That is not true. It was men, one man in particular, right? He lacked the husbandry and the provision and the protection of coming alongside and saying, God did say, Satan, and get out of here. And so sin enters the world. And what does sin do? Here's what sin does. This is the the Nathan Millican paraphrase of the whole Bible in terms of what sin makes you do. Sin makes you stupid. Amen, Amen, right? Sin just makes us stupid. Have you ever thought about something you did maybe nine minutes ago or hours ago or days ago and you thought, why in the world did I say that? Anybody? Because there's nine honest people here and and, and there's not. I mean, I, I think that regularly. I'm like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Sin makes us stupid. It makes us say and do irrational things, illogical things. And if you look at the storyline of scripture, sin devastates 
friendships and relationships and kingdoms and families. If you were to go to 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writing to his protege, his mentee Timothy, says in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the, the foremost or the chief of sinners. What is Paul doing in that verse? He's saying, in effect, this. I know my sin. And what I've seen in my own heart is darker and more awful and more proud and more selfish and more self-exalting. And it's consistently and regularly in rebellion against God more so than anything or anyone else that I know. Paul was a student of his heart. And I got to tell you, I thought I was a pretty great guy until I got married. I thought I'm a pretty selfless individual. I'm gentle. I'm kind. I'm patient. I put other people's needs before my own. And then God allowed me to meet my bride on April 29, 2001. We got married a couple years later. And I had a wake-up call of many things. I was not nearly as great as I thought I was. And then God said, I'm going to give you a kid. Then I'm going to give you a second kid. Then I'm going to give you a third kid. Then I'm going to give you a fourth kid. You say, Nate, you must be really sinful. I am really sinful. And so my marriage and parenting has done many things. It's such a privilege and joy to be married to my bride and to have four kids. I mean, I just, we struggled for five years and God's given us four. We're so thankful. But one of the things that marriage and parenting has done, it has squeezed out sin in my life. And God's created a lot of circumstance in my life and he exposes who I am on the inside. Where did romance go wrong? Genesis 3. Eve blames who? The serpent. I ain't taking ownership of my life. Adam blames who? He says, you know what? It was me. I should have been actually portraying biblical headship. I should have been providing. I should have been protecting. What does he do? He says, God, this woman that you gave me, Adam ain't taking responsibility. Right? No moral culpability. And so it goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3. Well, how can romance, intimacy, oneness be redeemed? And remember, it's not just about romance. It's not just about the oneness of marriage. It's not just about the intimacy in marriage, because if that's the point, then really there's a lot of us like, I'm, I'm checking out. There's no application of her. It's not just about romance. As romance, intimacy points us to something, someone else. How can romance be redeemed or restored. If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, I think it'll be on the screens as well. Here's what Paul writes. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, he became like that of a servant born in the likeness of man. We see in those verses the good news, the work, and the person of Jesus Christ, who puts our needs before his own, right? If you were to look in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the humanity of Christ on display. He says, not my will, but 
but your, your will. He understands what he's about to do. He understands the anguish and the abandonment that he's going to experience on the cross, but this is the only way. This is the only way that sinners can be forgiven. Before we were Christians, we were not neutral or ambivalent towards God. The Bible calls us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we were enemies of God, and yet God, even when we were enemies, chose to respond to us in love. What does he do? He gives us mercy. He gives us mercy. What is mercy? Not giving to people what they do deserve. I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. Uh, The Bible says we were enemies. We were separated from God by way of our sin, both nature and nurture. We were born sinners and we choose to sin. We choose to be autonomous. We choose rebellion. We want to go our own way. But God gives us mercy in that he responds to us in a way that we don't deserve. It doesn't treat us as if we do deserve. Do you see God as a God of mercy? Do you see your spouse and even friends through the lens of mercy? If the answer to those questions, no, I don't see God as a God of mercy. No, I don't see my spouse through the lens of mercy. The chances of your marriage being sweet are slim to none. But if you see your marriage in particular and close friendships through the lens of mercy, your marriage and your friendships will be sweetened. But when it's absent, two people are going to flog one another from everything as simple as not loading or emptying the dishwasher to the disagreement over a bill. Mercy not being present. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, how can romance, how can intimacy, how can oneness, how can relationships be redeemed? The gospel, the goodness of Christ, is a call to die to who? Ourselves, right? Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2. For I have been crucified with Christ. Nate Milliken no longer lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. So in particular, marriage is a call to die to ourselves. And I, I've heard many, many times people describe marriage like this. Marriage is... 50-50. Anybody heard marriage is 50-50? And what that does, unknowingly or knowingly, it treats marriage like a transaction. You do your part, and I'm going to do mine. Now, I just got to ask a question. Now, if, is that really the biblical response to marriage? If marriage is to be a symbol of the gospel, if marriage is to be a portrayal of what God has done in Christ, Do we actually meet God halfway? God has said, you've done nothing, and I'm going to do everything, 100% and zero. A marital relationship is a call to die to ourselves. We don't want to treat our marriage like a transaction. Where did romance start? Where did intimacy start in the garden? Where did it go wrong? Genesis chapter 3. How can it be redeemed? We see throughout the message of the New Testament, the good news of Christ comes and redeems, not just calling us from death to life, though that's amazing and awesome, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, as we see in the book of Colossians. But the message of Christ is to infiltrate every area of our lives. So Pastor Larry is down the road preaching at our Palmyra campus. Does the gospel have a word about our finances? Of course. Uh, to the, the, the degree that we're actually generous and sacrificial 
is the degree that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, we actually understand the gospel. If you have people who are misers, they don't really understand the generosity that the Father has showed us in Christ. The gospel informs everything. Well, what does this mean for me? Nate, thanks. What does this mean for me? Well, what is mercy? Not giving to people what they do deserve. And on your listening guide, you've got three points there about mercy. Mercy before the fact in terms of people sinning against you. Do you know that people are going to sin against you today? Yeah, you know that. Are you going to sin against other people? You say, not me. Yes, you will. We're going to sin against people, and people are going to sin against us. How do we put on the new life in Christ and exude mercy before the fact? Before we know we're going to sin, well, we practice kindness. God sees all, and yet he is what? Abounding in steadfast love and kind, compassionate to us. So even before we actually sin, God is going to have a posture of kindness and mercy to us. Well, mercy when under attack. Mercy in the moment. Have you had people sin against you this past week? Yeah. Well, in that moment, what should we do as believers? Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. Mercy. What about after the fact? We want to cover sin. We want to give mercy. This past Tuesday my wife and I got into an argument, okay? Now, in the first service, she was not here, and I said that the argument was mostly her fault. She's here in the second service, so the argument was mostly my fault, okay? And, and truly, it was, it was mostly my fault. And um, I was angry and uh, just was not being kind and not being patient, <clears throat> and I didn't actually do this mercy after the fact, the, the imagery of what Peter says, love covers a multitude of sin. It covers. The imagery of covering is you want to put a covering over somebody and you want to protect the relationship. But oftentimes, what do we do? We want to remove the covering and say, huh, you're on your own. Right, right? Is anybody else there? But love covers a multitude of sins. And that's mercy after the fact that you sinned against me and I'm gonna give to you what you don't deserve, grace. And I'm not gonna give you what you do deserve, grace and mercy. Well, why? Why should we do that? Look at Ephesians chapter four. I don't think it's on the screen, but I'm gonna read this for us. Ephesians chapter four, verse 22. And I'm gonna read about seven, eight verses. Verse 22. To put off your old self. I became a believer at age 10. So I've been a believer 28 years, which is not a long time. But the old Nate Milliken, the Nate Milliken that was crucified with Christ, that died with Jesus on the cross, the new Nate Milliken that was raised to newness of life when I became a believer, the old Nate Milliken still wants to raise its ugly head and make destruction. But Paul says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And instead, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to do what? Put off the former Nate, but put on the new Nate. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, not tearing down, 
right? What's a, what's a romance killer? Tearing down. Words of discouragement. Words of critique. Words of impatience. He says, for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, to give them what they don't deserve. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When you don't give words that build up, when you don't give grace, when you're not merciful, what are we doing? We're grieving the Spirit of God, and that is a romance, intimacy, friendship, marriage killer. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You live with somebody, and they're nothing but critical and hateful and mean and unkind. They never encourage, they never affirm, they never, they never have sweetness of words, and it is draining. So he's saying in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, put on Jesus, put on the new mind, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it's never helpful to say, stop doing that. That's not what the biblical writers do. They say, stop doing that, but instead do this. And if God gave us a command, can we actually do it? It would be the height of evil if God gave us a command, but knowing that we cannot do it. We can do it in the power of what? The good news of Christ. So I want to give you two handles this morning, and then I'll close. Two handles in terms of how to cultivate romance in our marital relationships and even in our friendships. The first is speech or communication. Pastor Larry I preached on this last week, so I'll not spend a lot of time on it, but speech or communication. And the second is conflict, okay? Conflict. Now, what is the goal of our speech? What's the goal of communication? Well, Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets, which is a shorthanded way of saying the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if that's the, the summary of the Old Testament, he says all of life can be distilled down to loving God with the totality of your life and loving your neighbor as you love yourself, then the goal of speech and our words is what? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, I talked with a counselor friend of mine and he, and he was telling me about communication. He says when people communicate, there's three facets to communication, three details. You've got Words and their meaning, right? Words and their meaning. Then you've got tone, and then you've got nonverbals. Now, let me ask you a question. Am I communica communicating when I do this? <sighs> am I, am I, am I communicating like loud and clear? You say, no words and meaning came out of your mouth, but you are communicating loud and clear. Or what if I do this? Like, I mean, I'm... I'm communicating. Or what if your wife says, yes, I love you. Like that's, like, I don't think she meant it. Like she did not mean it. I'm not very smart, but I'm telling you, she didn't mean it in that moment, okay? So words and meaning, tone and nonverbals. When we communicate and use our words, we're, we don't need to be mindful just of our words. We need to be mindful of the posture we come across that we exude and our Nonverbals, which means we need to be honest and we need to be truth tellers, as Paul tells us, but we need to speak the truth in love. Well, what is love? Love does patience. 
Love does kindness. Love does gentleness. Speak the truth in love. I really believe if we don't speak the truth in love, you know what Paul would say? Just don't say it. Speak the truth in love, which means you need to be concerned with what you say, how you say it, with how much you say, when you say it, and why you say it. Now, I'm, I'm a little upset with Pastor Larry, and here's why. Last week, he showed a video on communication. Anybody see the video last week about nailed it? I haven't watched it. And um, I was talking with my bride, and she had a problem. And I said, hey, and I had a solution. I mean, I had a great solution. I said, do you want me to share my solution, or do you want me to listen? And she said, Elizabeth, have you watched Larry's video? And I said, no. She goes, we're done. So okay. So we need to speak the truth. We need to know when to say it and how to say it. And my wife is not a morning person, okay? I'm a morning person. She's not. And one of the things that's helped our marriage flourish is I don't talk to my wife in the mornings. Don't talk to her. I leave her alone. And our marriage, is, it's, not, it's better. It's way better than what it was because I wanted to talk about what I read in the Bible and the joy of the Lord and all these things. She's like, no, not now. Three hours, and then when I've had my coffee, and our marriage is better. Speaking the truth in love means you need to know when to say it, how to say it, why to say it, how much to say it, okay? Speak the truth and keep relevant. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. When you do, you give a foothold for the devil. You open the way where resentment and bitterness, and some of us have let days after days and weeks after weeks let go by, and that bitterness and resentment is festering like a champ, and it is like a gangrene. It will, it will destroy relationships. You want to be truthful? You want to be relevant? The day that you sin against your spouse or your kids or a close friend should be the day that you fix it. Be relevant. Attack the problem, not the person. Paul tells us in verse 29 and verse 30 of chapter four, we should not have words that tear down, words that bypass the conflict, words that grieve the Holy Spirit. We should have words that build up, build up that edify, that encourage. And we should act and not react. We need to put off attitudes and put off actions that are gonna be unhelpful malice and clamor and bitterness and resentment. Instead, we should be kind. The word kindness means to actually do actions that help someone, to have a posture of help. How can I help you? How can I be kind? Isn't kindness and graciousness disarming? I mean, have you ever, have you ever been like really angry at somebody and you thought that you, maybe you were justified, but then they, they were humble and gracious and merciful and kind? And isn't it like, don't you want to be, but you can't be mad at a humble person. Like, you can't be angry if somebody's, like, kind. You want to be, and sometimes we still are, but kindness and humility that comes because of Jesus having changed our life is disarming in a marital relationship and friendships. Tenderhearted, it's a humble, gentle, tender posture. Forgiveness is the word that comes from, is the word that actually means gracious and forgiving, we want to communicate in ways that are forgiving and gracious and kind and tenderhearted. Now, I know that in this room, there's probably a lot of us that struggle with that. I struggle with that. But Paul says, put off the old Nate, put on the new Nate, and through the power of Christ, the goodness of Jesus, you can actually 
have relationships that flourish. Romance can happen and be cultivated. Intimacy can happen because of your words, our the way we speak. Secondly, resolving conflict. Resolving conflict. How do you how do you think about conflict? How do you resolve conflict? Some people think about it like this: fight to win. I'm gonna win, you're gonna lose. I'm in the right, you're in the wrong. Now don't point anybody out, don't nudge anybody. But that's not the way God wants us to respond to conflict, fight to win, to be domineering. It's my way or the highway. Some people withdraw. You seek to avoid discomfort at all costs, saying this is uncomfortable, so I'm going I'm to get out. You don't see any hope in resolving the conflict or you lack the strength or the fortitude of will to confront it. And so what do you do? You just keep give people the silent treatment. You withdraw and you're icy cold, and that's not the way God wants us to think about conflict. Or we yield. You assume it's far better just to go along with somebody's, somebody else's demands than risk a confrontation. Rather than start an argument, whatever you wish is fine. Whatever you wish is fine. And to you, a safe relation with no confrontation is better than a close relationship. How should we cultivate romance and intimacy and friendship in the context of marriage and with other people? We should lovingly resolve conflict. Lovingly resolve. You should take steps to carefully, sensitively, tactfully discuss the issue. And resolving conflict requires a special attitude of humility. This is why I quoted uh, Philippians 2 where Paul says, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Do you know why I get into a lot of arguments? You know why I get into a lot of sinful discussions? Because oftentimes I kept myself more significant than the person I'm talking to. My preferences, my needs, my wants, my agenda, my interpretation, my perspective, and oftentimes sin creeps in and almost always creates disunity and dysfunction. We want to value our relationships more than winning, more than losing, more than escaping, and more than feeling comfortable. We want to lovingly resolve. And a romance killer can be a lack of a commitment to resolve conflict and not using our words to communicate in a way that honors Christ. And I said, Nate, we talked a lot about marriage. I'm not married, I'm single. Um, what is this, what is this, how does this bear an application to my life? What's, what's the point? Well, here, here's what I wanna close with. Romance matters because Jesus matters. The title of the message was, what does Jesus have to do with romance? I think everything. Jesus wants every facet of our life surrendered to him, right? But changing habits and preferences and interactions is impossible on our own, which is why we need the good news of Jesus to actually change us internally. And that change that's happened on the inside comes out in the way that we speak and the way that we actually respond and engage with conflict. And this is really, I, I, I love this. In the very beginning, I said this, Romance started in the garden, right? Genesis 2. You have a marriage in the very beginning in a garden. 
If you were to read throughout the scriptures, Jesus is called among many things, among many titles. Paul calls him in Romans chapter five, the second Adam. The first Adam failed, right? He failed to provide and protect his spouse, Eve, as she was being lured and tempted by the devil. But the second Adam, Jesus, not only did he not fail like Adam, but he was victorious in bringing about the greatest rescue plan ever. And romance is a foretaste of what is to come. Let me say it again. Romance, as seen in marriage particularly, is a foretaste of what is seen to come because romance is never just about a man and a woman. Romance is never just about a man and a woman. The intimacy, the relationship points us to a greater relationship, a greater oneness than just the marital relationship. So in the beginning, there's a marriage in a garden. And if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, you know what you find? Another garden and another marriage. You think that's coincidental? No, it's God's plan. He wants us to understand. We live in a Genesis 3, in between a Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 world. And we long for the day when sin and brokenness will be removed and eradicated. Let me read this, these verses to you. At the very end of the Bible, there's a marriage in the garden. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 7, verse 9, and Revelation 21, verse 1. John writes, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This relationship that we have with the Father through Christ is seen in the garden, in this marital type of symbolic relationship. What you believe about God will determine the quality of your romance and your marriage. Our theology governs our view and way of life, and romance is an other-oriented action. And where do we see someone living in such an other-oriented fashion, more so than the person and the work of Jesus. So here's why romance matters. Romance matters because when we put somebody else's needs before our own, whether a friendship in terms of uh, concerns or cares or intimacy, in the context of a close friendship or certainly in the context of marriage, when we put cares and concerns and needs and preferences of someone else before our own, you know what we're doing? We're actually showcasing the majesty and the awesomeness of the gospel of Christ. We're saying, this is what Christ has done in me. This is what Christ has done for me. It, I'm not gonna live for my own selfish, selfish ambition and conceit, but I'm in humility gonna count someone else more significant than me. And when we fail, we don't put other people's needs and preference and squelch romance, squelch intimacy. You know what we are failing to do? We're failing in the opportunity that God's given to us to make much of him, to make much of him. So romance matters. Why? Because Jesus matters. Every facet of our life is meant to make much of Jesus, even as something as we might think as trivial as romance. But in God's eyes, it's a big deal.